Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Hi FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kievman. And today we're going to look at some aspects and elements of the Parsha we read this week, the portion of Shmini, which addresses the laws of kosher. Kosher is always a hot-button topic in our neighborhood. And certainly at our daily senior share at Chabad House, we, whenever I mention kosher, certainly everyone has something to say. And let's try it out today because one of the questions we keep on getting, people ask me, is how could it be that some of our kosher establishments aren't exactly the cleanest? Now, I'm not going to mention anyone by name, and perhaps it's much better these days than it's been in the past, but I do recall I've been in this country for nearly 20 years. Uh, there have been some establishments in the past, at least, that did not meet the cleanest of standards and personally it's a pet peeve of mine when i see you know people handling cash and handling my food with the same hands at the same time there's just something about it that doesn't you know as we say doesn't jive well with me and as people ask isn't the purpose of kosher to keep our food at the top health quality i remember when a few years ago there was a major controversy in the community when a particular caterer turned out not to be so kosher and people were asking is it only about the torah standard of what's kosher or is perhaps health and cleanliness and treatment of staff etc etc so we'll try to address and look at some of these issues because in our parsha this week we read the laws of kosher. It's one of the places in the Torah that it's mentioned. And one of the basic rules we know is that all animals need to have two signs to be kosher, split hooves and chewing their cut. If they do not regurgitate or if their feet are not split, then they are not kosher. Well, all other animals, the Torah tells us that if they don't have these signs, are not fit for Jewish consumption. Now, the first and most obvious question is, why must the Torah forbid the consumption of any animal altogether? What did the Torah find unfitting about a horse? What's wrong? Maimonides, Rambam, explains, he tells us that this mitzvah, he gives it to us from a medical perspective. From that, you know, he was after all a, a physician, he was a doctor himself. So he said that any meat that is potentially harmful to the human being, God, in his boundless kindness and God's compassion, God prohibited us from consuming. But looking out for our health could not possibly be the sole reason for this mitzvah. We all know if kosher food is supposed to be healthy, then how can some of our favorites, such as latkes and what else do we guys like? Schmaltering and chulent and chopped liver and lots of these other goodies have all types of cholesterol and sodium and diabetic issues. That's not really great for our health and well-being. If the point were to preserve our health, then maybe in the olden days, these laws would be a great set of health guidelines. But nowadays, when technology could test any kind of amount of food and see if it's safe for us, if it meets the guidelines, the laws of kosher should perhaps be obsolete. What, of what relevance is it today? And today, many food establishments will tell you exactly how many calories and all the health elements of the food you're consuming. Torah is not a medical document. And it does it really concern itself with all these matters of our health? 
When it comes to other health issues, the Torah tells us very clearly, you should certainly be careful and guard your lives. And God tells us, in the Torah, it clearly states, go to a doctor. The doctor is God's messenger for healing in this world. Right? The Torah doesn't mention even any of the other dangerous plants and herbs that exist. There's plenty that aren't so healthy, but they're not mentioned in the Torah. And at the end of the day, you tell me who looks healthier to you. Strictly kosher meat-eating Jews, those who make sure they're getting the, the Mahadran, Sheba Mahadran standards, or perhaps <laughs> sometimes look in the gym and some of our Gentile friends and neighbors who eat anything they like from shellfish and any animal and who knows what. So you tell me it's kosher specifically about our dietary consumption, what we eat, because I could certainly point to you plenty people who aren't Jewish and don't eat kosher, and yet they seem much healthier and better looking, at least physically, than some of us. So we have to understand it a little better. Nachmanides explains that, you know, they say you are what you eat. And therefore, if you eat a carnivore, you'll take on a little bit of the callousness that it takes to kill another living creature. In other words, eating a flesh eater will cause you to become insensitive to other people's feelings. So therefore, Ramban Nachmanides explains, the Torah therefore instructs us to only eat vegetarian animals because being merciful is part of being Jewish. Now, there certainly is truth to this idea that Nachmanides tells us. But still, if it's true that kosher food is good for the body and the soul, why would Torah only command us, the Jewish people, to keep kosher? It would seem that God, who created all human beings, would care enough about everyone. Isn't, aren't Gentiles also created in the divine image? Torah doesn't distinguish between us and others. So certainly, every single person should be included in this. If we're meant to be eating, consuming only animals that are, so to say, merciful, then why only Jews? Just as God gave the Gentiles laws to keep just for basic human decency, for ethics, the seven Ohad laws, God could have told them also as part of that not to eat the same animals we can't eat. Well, the very first prohibition that God placed on man actually, as you might recall, was also about eating. Remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? What did God tell them? That you could eat anything in the garden except for the tree, the eights hadat tovarah, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the Medrash explains that this was a regular tree. There was no special powers. If Adam had waited just three hours he would have been permitted to enjoy that tree as well. Special Shabbos treat. The purpose of prohibiting the consumption of one tree in the middle of an orchard, in the middle of paradise, was that the tree should serve as a reminder to Adam and Eve of their obligation to their creator. It was only after Adam had sinned by eating the forbidden fruit that it got nicknamed the tree of good and evil, actually. It was named that because the outcome of the story, before the sin, Adam had been perfectly righteous. 
After all, every human being created, every baby, what wrong could a baby do? The moment that he ate from this tree, he was transformed into a being that was known, that, that knew both good and evil by betraying that trust that God says don't and Adam did. So this is why some animals are forbidden while others are permitted. It's not just because the forbidden meats are harmful in some way. Rather, by forbidding some and not others, God sets this constant reminder for us about our obligation to him. Whenever we sit down to eat and we know this I can and that I can't, it's a reminder, it's a, it's a discipline. In Hasidic parlance, this is called iskafia, breaking oneself, holding oneself back, that self-control. When we see that, you know, you see kosher ice cream and you want to eat it, even though it's chalav Yisrael, it's fully kosher. Hasidus tells us that that restraint, that self-discipline, that holding back from eating the particular food, even as kosher as it might be, that Discipline helps us weaken our Yetzirah, our evil inclination. Now, of course, if the purpose of Torah's prohibitions is to weaken our evil inclination, which is the idea that Hasidus explains, so perhaps why isn't not touching the tree good enough? Why must the prohibition be specifically against eating? Remember what, how the Nachash, how the serpent Obviously, in those days, the serpent was able to communicate. How the serpent convinced Eve, Chava, to eat from the tree. She said, don't touch it. She added to the prohibition. And perhaps we could say, with any other desire, it's possible to completely avoid contact with the object that you desire and could spear us from being tested. For example, if a person has a burning desire for beautiful cars, right? Or ostentatious homes. You could live in a cave in the forest where you'll never see these things and still survive. But food is something that we need every day. There's no way to avoid food. Everybody enjoys the food they eat. So on the one hand, food is a necessary staple. On the other hand, it's our greatest soft spot. And this is why God chose disciplined eating. When we have that self-control, if you succeed in controlling that sweet tooth, then all the other temptations will be far easier to combat because you have self-control over such a basic staple. We'll continue our discussion. We'll be right back in just a moment. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9. Hi, FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kivan. Great to be back with you here today. And so far, we've been talking a little bit about the importance, the significance of the food we consume. But as you know, and personally, as we're getting ready for Pesach, we have our exciting Pesach retreat coming up in a few weeks, and everyone's going to be preparing for their Pesach celebrations. We know that even that then especially, the laws of kosher get 
all the more stringent and as we discussed about self-control, this is a matter that really one has to deal with and know the laws of kosher and how they pertain to us individually. And it's not only about the food that we eat. In our Parsha, we learn about the laws of Tuma and Tahara, the ritual impurity and purity. And that actually is something still relevant today, but it was a major part of Jewish life in the past, especially in the times of our temple 1900 years ago, it was part of the fabric of daily living. You know, like today, <laughs> I don't know, li- dealing with the realities of life, we could appreciate we, we we could appreciate the past Jewish history only when we study the Talmud and the, the Torah and understand how relevant these laws are. So certainly, as an example, as we get ready for our retreat, and we have to make sure that each of the dishes and everything that we're going to be preparing to ensure that those are all included in the laws of kosher. So one other aspect that I thought was quite relevant to examine is about the laws of vessels. Now, as you know, if you have glass, glass can be koshered, metal can be koshered, but certain vessels cannot be koshered. And I'm talking here specifically about the laws of ceramics, of clay vessels. The Torah tells us that most utensils, even if they become spiritually impure, how, well, in ancient times by coming in contact with an impure source, such as the lifeless corpse of a human being, the carcass of an impure animal, today, if it comes in contact with non-kosher food. So, for example, if you have a... A vessel, right? And a dead weasel fell on it, right? Or or came in contact with a human corpse or any other source of impurity. Then they need spiritual cleansing. Now the general rule is without getting into the complex intricacies of the laws of kosher, we're talking about the way it becomes unkosher, a vessel can become kosher. So if you need more details on that, practically speaking, check the latest edition of the Beth Din's Pesach guidelines and you'll see what requires Eroi if it came in contact, if it became unkosher through, through heat and how may all the specific laws related to it. But in the times of the temple, it went. It was more complex than it is today in many ways. And part of the cleansing process required a mikvah. Today we also use a mikvah to kosher items. But as long as it's not cleansed, all food or drink that would be placed into such a vessel would become impure. And they... You know, you can't place in them any sacred food that has to remain pure. Meaning, in the times of the temple, there were laws related to the truma, the food of the temple sacrifices, that was not only about kosher and non-kosher. I'm talking about purity versus impurity. So think about it. How about an earthen utensil, which is called a klicheres in the Torah, a vessel made out of clay, right? You take earth, you mix it with water and straw, mold it into a particular shape that you want, and then bake it in the sun or in a furnace, that is your earthenware vessel. So the question we ask here is, 
Well, it becomes impure only if the source of impurity enters into its inside. In the words of our Parsha, what does the verse say? An earthen vessel, which one of these falls inside, something impure. The Torah law tells us it differentiates between an earthen vessel and utensils that are made of any other material. Other utensils become impure only through the contact of an impure object, of something, an impure animal or, or a carcass, whatever it is, that comes in contact with any part of the utensil. An earthen utensil, however, becomes impure only if the source of impurity actually enters inside of its, in, in the cavity. For example, if you have an earthenware jar and a dead mouse falls into it, into the cavity of the open jar, then it becomes impure. But if it only touches it outside on the surface, then guess what? It has no impact and it remains pure. What if the earthenware utensil has no inside? All right, take, I don't know, uh, uh, cutlery. Cutlery has no inside. Or even a bed or a bench, a table, a flat plate. Such a vessel cannot become impure because it only becomes impure if the impurity enters into its inside. And these utensils have no inside. An earthenware goblet or a bowl can become impure because it has a, it has a vacuum. It has that, that void, that space inside, a cavity. But a flat plate doesn't. So uh, a fork doesn't. Now, why this distinction between an earthenware vessel and all other vessels, you ask? So the answer is actually fascinating. For a vessel to become impure, it needs to be functional. It needs to be valuable. It needs to be usable to human being. Whatever has no value to human being is immune to impurity. Because the forces of impurity are only attracted to something of an elevated spiritual potential, and so only to something that can be used by a human being for their personal needs. The more value it has, meaning the more potential it has for a spiritual use, the more susceptible it is to impurity. Now, the value of the utensil of wood or metal is not only in the fact that it can contain something. Rather, the material of which it is made is also worth something. So... Contact with any part of it, including its outside surface, has an effect on its ritual state. The value of a silver cup is not only that it could hold wine in it, but rather the silver itself has a tremendous value, usually even more than the wine inside it. So if you look at earthenware vessels, <laughs> it's, uh, what's earthenware? It's cheap. It's made from mud. On its own, it has virtually no value. It has value only as a container that it could be used to store something inside of it. So it is affected only by what happens to its inside because that is what gives it importance, human value. 
It's the cavity, the open space, that which holds something inside of it, which makes it meaningful, not its outer surface. So only when the impure source actually enters the space, the cavity inside, does it become impure. Of course, my friends, every law in Judaism has to be understood, not only on a physical, concrete level, but also from a psychological and a spiritual perspective. I want to share with you a deep, beautiful insight as taught by the Rebbe. The Rebbe explained that a human being is essentially a klicheres, an earthenware vessel. Think about it. The Torah tells us that God formed Adam, we discussed Adam and Eve before, that Adam was created, why is is his name Adam? Because God formed him from the dust of the earth. And God blew into his nostrils a breath of life, a spirit of life. On our high holidays, we say it, Adam Yesodam Eafar. Man's origin is from the dust of the earth. The sci-fi, and we know that the end of life, back, lafar, we return to the dust of the earth. And therefore our sages tell us that at risk of our life, we work hard to earn a living. Yavi to, to to bring bread, to put salami on the table. And what's the metaphor that we say in our prayers on the holidays? On the high holidays, to illustrate how man comes from dust of the earth and returns to the dust of the earth, we say man is like a broken earthenware vessel. And we say, Withering like withering grass. Like a fading flower. Could sail over like a passing shade. Like a dissipating cloud. Like a, a blowing wind. Like a Flying dust. Or like a fleeting dream. Here we have that example. We, the human being, is like a clay vessel. Now, there are two visions for human life. And I think we have two different types of earthen vessels that we can be compared to. One is an earthen vessel which has the inside cavity. A kli kubal is what it's called. Right? It holds something inside it, like a cup or a jar. The other one is a clay cheres, a clay vessel without an inside. Things can be placed on top of it. Things can be it could be used with items, but not inside of it, all right? You can't put anything inside a scissor, a fork. Spiritually, 
these two types of vessels represent two visions of human lives. One is life is about me. It's about what I could get out of it. The purpose of my life is how much could I accumulate, could I collect more and more items to fill my empty insides. Another gadget, another this, another that, what's going to make me happy? But another version of life, another vision is I am a channel for God. As the Mishnah says, I was created to serve my creator. Life is not about filling my voids. It's about fulfilling my mission for which God sent me to this world. I ask not what, 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 what could God do for me, but what can I do for God? I don't ask what life can do for me. I ask what I can do for life. I don't ask what others could do for me. But what can I do for others as the famous JFK speech? Now, at first glance, you might consider the first version of life far more satisfying. How much I could achieve, how much I could get. But the truth is we know that the more you have, the more vulnerable you are to distress, despair, impurity. When all is about me and me acquiring more and more, I'm vulnerable to all forms of frustration, to sadness, corruption. But when my focus is on the other, the difference between the animal, soil-oriented, S-O-I-L, versus the human that's soul-oriented. What can I do for others? I'm less vulnerable because I'm here to serve my creator, to fulfill my divine mission, mandate, purpose that I'm here for. So the question is, how do you know when your body is healthy? When you don't feel it, when you start to feel any part of your body, even if you don't feel pain, but only a sense of, of heaviness, it's a sign that something in the body is dysfunctional, something's wrong. The healthier the body is, the less you sense it. After a good exercise, a good workout, your body feels light, not heavy. You almost don't feel it because it's full of light. On the contrary, when you just finished eating a rib steak, <laughs> some sushi pizza, then you feel your body. It becomes a heavy burden because it's not fully in sync with its own energy. And the same is true with our soul. The less you feel yourself, the less it's S-O-I-L, soil-oriented, the more you could experience yourself as a channel for God and the happier you are. I've, I constantly insist on this for myself and I try to teach this to others. When we're there for another, that's when we feel most meaningful and purposeful. That's when we realize we're fulfilling our divine mission and purpose. So let me ask you, instead of searching your whole life for what you need, maybe search what you need it for. Find a mission, a purpose, which is greater, which transcends you and devote yourself to it. Live your life based on meaning 
rather than define meaning based on your life. Instead of telling God how great your problems are, tell your problems how great God is, as our Hasidic masters teach us. It's the very pursuit of happiness that oftentimes thwarts happiness. You can't own your happiness. Happiness must own you. You can't define your happiness. It must define you. That's the greatest paradox. As long as you're pursuing happiness as an end in itself, then happiness is unattainable. Artificial gratification, yes. A good feeling about your achievements, wonderful. But authentic, inner, genuine, sincere, real happiness at the core of your existence, that's only possible when you could give it to others. There's always going to be that void to be filled. When you forget about your own self, about your own pursuits, your own desires, what you want, and rather devote yourself fully to a greater cause, to a real purpose, then you could reach, then you could achieve genuine, non-self-conscious, self-centered, narcissistic bliss. That's when your life becomes a reflection of your deepest, innermost self, your divine core, your neshama, your soul. And so, my friends, to us, I think this is a tremendous lesson that we can ask ourselves. We are earthenware vessels. We are the offspring, the descendants of Adam. From the word Adama, Adam came from the earth. But Adam also means Adame. We are similar, similar to the divine. Adam Elyon. We reflect heaven. We have to choose which Adam we will become. We can be brute and selfish, or we could reflect the divine. Every human being has a demon inside them. It's just the way God made us. But if we don't challenge and tame it, as we discussed, that self-control and food being the greatest most accessible staple that we need all the time, then we could become a monster. If we can't control our desires, then we are capable of ugliness, of depravity. The human person has to realize though, that we are also capable of incredible greatness. That Adam is not just that we are from the dust of the earth, soil oriented, but rather Adam is also Adame. We are also soul oriented. The soul of each of us, like the Tanya tells us, is a chelik alekami mal, is literally mamash, a part of God. We are capable of generating infinite goodness. That's what each of us is able to do. Yes, we have both elements to us. We, there was a great sage who had two notes in each, one in each of his pockets. One saying, Anaychi, I'm just dust, like the dust of the earth. But the other one is, I am indispensable to God's plan. I am Adam Elyon. And that, I think, is the duality of each of us. Why we have our good inclination and our evil inclination, our godly soul and our animal soul. That's the way God made us. The very name Adam tells us that we have both aspects and elements. And so we are created in the divine image. And we are also created from the dust of the earth. 
And I think that illustrates that we have both aspects within ourselves. I could either see myself as a clay vessel who's here only to serve itself, or I could see myself as a clay vessel whose entire identity is a reflection of God's light. And these two perspectives create two potentials for the life that I live. Which brings us, of course, to the big question, which is, does our submission to God mean that we forget about ourselves? If God created us in both ways, are they two extremes? Does that vision of life mean that I have to tell myself, I'm just nothing, I'm a shmata, I'm worthless? My entire value is that I work for God. I have no inside, no sense of an inner self. All I am is this vehicle. Is that even healthy? Isn't that inconsistent with human nature, with the fact that I am created as a human being? Is, is this really the ideal to, to, to feel like I'm nothing? Just a channel? Does Judaism really ask us to negate and to neglect and to forget who we are? And the answer, of course, is no, because God created us with both aspects, with both elements. While it's true that Adam means that I am from the dust of the earth, and also I am Adam Elyon. Even if an earthing utensil has an inside, but it was not constructed for the purpose of containing things for itself, then it still cannot become impure. So for example, an earthenware pipe, it has an inside, but it wasn't made to contain water, only to transfer the water to another location, because it's a pipe. Such a vessel can never become impure. Just like an earthing utensil, which has no inside in it, because even though this one does have an inside, but the inside wasn't created for the inside per self, doesn't mean per se itself. So unlike a cup or a jar, which is made to contain stuff in it, the pipe is not made to contain, it's made to transfer, to channel. And I think this idea reflects an important truth in the Jewish approach to the question of our identity. God wants us to have insights and to fill them up with abundance, materially and spiritually. God wants us to, to be aware of our virtues, of our positive qualities, of recognizing who we are, to utilize them in the most successful way. God wants us to realize the greatness in each of us and the enormous potential and blessing that each of our souls has. The question is not if you have an insight, but why do you have that insight? Why was it created for what purpose? If it was made for itself, then indeed it could become impure. But if we view ourselves as the depth of our personalities and everything that we do as an opportunity to fulfill our divine mission, then we don't become impure. Because every single one of us was created to serve God. We realize we're here for a divine purpose. Our entire inside is an expression of bringing divine light into the world. When you see yourself as impure, it's only your perspective because you don't see yourself who you really are. You really are a channel for the divine, an expression of God himself. 
Don't see yourself as separate, as detached. When you are cognizant, when you're aware of your purpose in this world as fulfilling a divine mission, then you're not capable of becoming impure. God formed your vessel in, 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 in a fashion, in a way, with a purpose that is completely and absolutely one with God. Your entire identity, your entire life, your entire persona, your entire psyche is created for God, is completely united with God to the point that you and God are absolutely one, always, all the time. Your entire reality is a reflection of divine light. This is who you really are. And when you discover this, then you realize there's nothing impure about you. That's why we start our prayers every day. We say, My God, the soul that you imbued within me. It is pure. Because you created it. You formed it. You blew it into me. You guarded in me. We realize our core, our essence is pure divinity, pure godliness. And even when I'm in a state where it seems like I'm down, I've fallen, perhaps I've succumbed to whatever taiva temptations I face, but I realize that my true essence, my neshama, my soul is a pure part of God. Then it's not really truly corruptible. I'll bring it back. I'll return to who I truly am. And that, my friends, is the story of our earthen vessel that each one of us remains beyond any form of impurity. The story of Adam, who in the midst of the abyss remained connected to the highest of heavens. And I think it tells us what a human being is capable of. Yes, it's true. We could sin. We could betray God. Don't focus on our shortcomings and our failures. But rather, Adam el the greatest we can be. And so in the laws of kosher, we learn not only about the food we consume, but also even about the vessels we use and the vessels who each of us are. We'll be right back. IFM. 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. We've been talking all about kosher today. So I want to conclude by telling you a little bit about a very interesting book that recently came out about Rabbi Yitzchak David Grossman. You might know him. You may have seen him at the Sinai in Daba. He's a rabbi from Migdala Amek in Israel. And this book talks a lot about his activities. He came here to South Africa on numerous occasions, spoke at our shul, spoke for our community. And he... The book talks a little bit about his involvement in the community where he's a rabbi in Israel, which was a, a formerly poor and, and crime-ridden Israeli town. And he established a whole web of institutions really helping members of his community, particularly the underprivileged children and those who unfortunately fall through the cracks. And one of the stories that's related in the book is regarding his, one of the things he does, one of his tasks is providing the kashrut, the kosher supervision for the local food establishments. One of the establishments that he supervises is a local butchery, a slaughterhouse. 
And there was a mashkiach that Rabbi Grossman appointed who was responsible to ensure that all the chickens were properly slaughtered and inspect the shachtim, the, the that they're doing it properly. And that, of course, ensuring that no non-kosher chickens were, would get mixed in with the kosher. So that was the job of this particular mashkiach. And one day, the mashkiach reported very disturbing news. A number of boxes of non-kosher chickens which, of course, that's part of the process of the slaughtering is to, of, the, of the mashkiach is to make sure that the non-kosher chickens are separated from the kosher ones and don't get mixed together. And he says, although they were set aside the night before, somehow they were gone and he doesn't know where they went. Of course, there was an investigation and it was revealed that the owner of this butchery, he came there and seeing so many chickens going to waste, he told them to move those boxes into the kosher section. He didn't want to lose so much from this non-kosher. Rabbi Grossman immediately called the company that purchased all these chickens, and he informed them that the kashrut certification had been removed, and those chickens should not be purchased. Of course, it didn't take long for a whole reaction, and uh, there was a whole lawsuit. The owner called the Ministry of, of, of Industry, of Trade and Labor, and the minister at the time was Ariel Sharon, and he told them that because of Rabbi Grossman phoning the, the, the purchasers, many families would lose their jobs because of this termination of the contract, and the people are not going to be purchasing from him. So Arik Sharon called Rabbi Grossman, began a conversation, and he starts off, he says, he tells Rabbi Grossman, one man sins, and you're going to hurt the whole community, right? Because the owner did the, something wrong, you're, you're punishing everyone. And Rabbi Grossman responded that it's not a conversation that should just happen on the phone. He said, oh, let's have a meeting. So Arik Sharon, who was a kibbutznik with... Uh, not exactly all the awareness of Jewish law, but they met with Rabbi Grossman, and he, Rabbi Grossman gave him a crash course in the laws of Kashrut, as we discussed, as it is in our Parsha, and explained his responsibility as the supervising rabbi and why he hires the Mashkiach to be present and to ensure these types of things don't happen. And he tells Arik Sharon, you know, you're a celebrated general in the military. What would you do if you gave a specific set of orders to your subordinate and he then went and did the opposite, betrayed that mission? Would you just keep quiet? Well, Arik Sharon was listening. He said, I'm an officer in the army and people rely on me, Rabbi Grossman explained, to make sure that their food is kosher. When I give a certification, they know they could trust me. Here you have an owner who earns millions from processing all these birds, and instead of seeing the bigger picture, he mixes in a few boxes, thinking that he's going to, a couple of pennies that he's going to earn extra. If someone's willing to endanger his entire plant for a few boxes of chicken, then his judgment is clearly skewed.
He cannot be trusted to follow the instructions, and therefore we cannot certify this establishment. Sharon called the owner, told him that we need to sell the plant. It took some time, but in the end, the plant was transferred to new owners, and the rabbi then returned the kosher certification. That's the story, one of the stories mentioned. Of course, as we read and learn from our parsha, the parsha tells us about which animals are kosher and which aren't. What are the signs of a kosher animal that we discussed before chewing its cud, regurgitation? What are the signs of a kosher fish, fins and scales? What are the signs of a kosher bird? The answer, of course, is that the Torah doesn't give us signs. Torah gives us a list of prohibited birds, and we only eat birds which we know that have a tradition of being kosher. Now, our sages taught us in the Talmud that the names of the birds in the Torah are not randomized. They're not just random. They teach us something about the nature of those birds. So to conclude, let me share with you a few such examples. One bird is called the Racham, which some say is the vulture. It stems from the word mercy. But the Talmud says that it was called Racham because when the Racham comes to the world, mercy comes to the world. The Racham is a sign of mercy because when the Racham bird arrives, it is right before fall. When God is about to grant the world a large measure of tremendous rainwater, therefore it's called Racham. That's what the Gemara tells us. Of course, here we're entering the autumn fall season. So, it's somewhat relevant. Another example is the chasida, the stork, which stems from the word chesed, kindness. Why is it called chasida, the Gemara asks? Because she shares her food with her fellow birds, which is not typical for animals. Of course, the question that one wonders is, if it's such a kind bird, then why isn't it kosher? And the answer is that it does kindness, but only with its own kind. Right? She's also a carnivore which consumes other species. True kindness is not just for oneself, but for others as well. And that is an important idea in Judaism. We know that charity begins at home. But said, charity does not end at home. We have to be there for others as well. Another example is the shalach. It's the Cormorant. It's called shalach because it draws out shola, fish from the sea. It draws its sustenance by diving into the sea and catching fish. And the Talmud tells us that when Rabbi Yochanan would see a shalach, he would say, Mishpatecha tahom rabba, your judgments reach into the depths because the shalach represents the presence of God even in the depths of the sea. Its behavior demonstrates that God's providence reaches the fish. God determines which fish will be picked up by the shalach and which will survive. One of the foundations of Judaism in general, and of Hasidism in particular, is the idea of divine providence. God watches over every person and is involved in everything that happens to each of us. And Hasidus tells us this is true not only for humans, but for animals and even fish, they too experience divine providence. Even vegetation 
and inanimate objects are subject to God's attention. There's not even a single blade of grass that grows without God's personal divine providence. And of course the message is that the world could be like a stormy sea. From an external point of view, it seems that the world follows a natural course of events, wars in Ukraine, COVID-19. But when we dive into the sea, when we contemplate everything that goes on under the surface, we see that it's all God's hand. So my friends today, we discussed various angles and aspects, elements related to the laws of kosher. And of course, the psychological and spiritual relevance of each of these in our lives as well. My friends, take a deeper look as you study the Torah portion this week. Learn its messages, its relevance, its lessons for life. Wishing you all a meaningful, purposeful, and wonderful Shabbos. Don't forget this Shabbos we read not only the portion of Shemini, which is the Parsha as we discuss some of the laws of kosher, but an additional portion of Para, the laws of purity and impurity as we get ready for Pesach as well. All the best. Thanks for joining us here on Soul to Soul.